Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of the Play DNA podcast. I'm Cassandra. I'm Damon. I'm Sarah. And this week we are talking about really horrible rules, um, Cones of Dunshire rules, which we will uh, discuss shortly. But first, what did we play this week? Uh, I played a lot of games. I played Juicy Fruit again. I got it at Gen Con. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I played on tour three times. On tour Whoa. is the best. How many people did you play on tour with? Well, the first time I just played with Bo, and then I played with Glenn, Nathaniel, and all their kids. So six of us, seven of us. Nice. So did it work okay with two people? We're fine with two people. Wow. Mm-hmm. Impressive. I don't like the opposite Euro side. I thought it was not <laughs> as fun. But Why? also I think we just got some poor rolls at the beginning because you have to roll certain locations to begin with and 35 and like 60 were really close together. So it was hard to make the route around those two areas mm. work very well. But um, that's fine. It was still fun. It just wasn't as fun. <laughs> And then we played New York Slice. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. New York Slice is the piece of cake game, but with pizza. And it's got some bonus things on it. It's got like like daily specials. So the daily specials will give you certain upgrades to your pie that day. So that doesn't sound like a pizza place. What? Pizza places are nothing but specials. I've never seen a pizza place with a daily special. You mean like Domino's? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is called New York Slice, not <laughs> Franchise Slice. Fair enough. Um, and then uh, we also, I went to an Escape the Room game with my friend Kelly. It was really fun. Oh, cool. It was called um, Puzzle Effect Denver. And we played a scenario called The Real, which is in a movie theater. And it was so fun. Highly oh. recommend that one. Did it actually look like a movie theater? Like, how was the production design? You went in and you sat in movie theater seats, and then the movie started playing, and then you had to look around the movie theater for clues. It was really cool. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah. Well, uh, we only played two games this week. One was Damon's Game Wormwood, <laughs> which hardly counts, but, um, I mean, it's still a game. Uh, we played all the time. And uh, we also played Bandu, our go-to dexterity game. So, nothing new this week. Okay, so today we are talking about rules, uh, specifically very poorly written rules, or rules that make us want to cry. And this is based off of uh, the Cones of Dunshire. So, the Cones of Dunshire, if uh, any of you are Parks and Rec fans or have not watched Parks and Recreation... Uh, The Cones of Dunshire is a game that the nerd character Ben creates. Presenting the Cones of Dunshire, a brand new gaming experience. 8 to 12 players, two wizards, a maverick, the arbiter, two warriors, a corporal, and a ledgerman. Now the object is to accumulate cones, four cones wins, but in order to get a cone you have to build a civilization. The other amazing thing is the challenge play. Actually, let me tell you more about the trivia cards because you're going to need to know about Roblox first. No, never mind. Think about the challenge play is that it's basically the game in reverse. Then you roll three dice to see how many dice you roll with. Oh, 16. Perfect. Lots of choices. Oh, my God. The Maverick should be able to trade lumber for agriculture credits. How have I not thought of this before? It's the kind of thing that you would say if you're trying to make fun of gamers because from the outside, a lot of times, I think if you're trying to explain a game to a non-gamer, it sounds so ridiculous. Um, But the funny thing, the especially funny thing about Cones of Dunshire is that it's not, it is exaggerated, but it's not even that exaggerated, like compared to some of the games that are out there. (laughs) 
<laughs> like games get so crazy. So these are uh, Cones of Denshire passages in rule books that just are hilarious or horrible or make you want to cry. Um, and this is a perfect time to talk about it because we just played Oath. And, um, oh my good lord, Oath is like one of the most Cones of Dunshire games I have ever played. It's ridiculous. It's the worst game. Yeah, it's not great. Um, I don't know if it's the worst game because <laughs> I, I really don't know if we were playing... <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah. So, so we actually didn't read the rules when we learned to play. We learned from from a person who was excited about it and taught us. So, I did go and read the rule book, um, or I skimmed it. Um, it's a thirty two page rule book, and they tried really, really hard to make it simple. Like there are a lot of little scenarios inside of the rule book. As far as rule books go, I think they actually wrote it quite thoroughly and well there are even sections that are like the red player does this on his turn why does he do that why wouldn't he take this action or like why would you take this action it's very it tries to be very specific about why you would do certain things but the reason they have to be so specific is because it's so hard to understand and makes no sense (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so my favorite passage from oath um the oath rule book it it's so it just makes me want to cry so this is, this is what it says. The Grand Scepter's holder may exile a citizen by giving them five favor. They give one less favor if they are the Oath Keeper or have the people's favor, or two less if both. They give one more favor if the citizen is the Oath Keeper or has the people's favor, or two more if both. The total range is three to seven favor. A citizen may exile themselves by giving favor to the Grand Scepter's holder equal to the citizen's total number of secrets plus the number of war bands on the citizen's board. However, a citizen cannot exile themselves while they hold the Grand Scepter. Good lord. It's so horrible. <laughs> it's bad. There's <sighs> so many things happening here. Um, I think for one thing, it would have probably been good, like this this people's favor thing and like how many favor you have to give is so complicated, they should have just put it into a chart. Like it really doesn't make any sense as a sentence. Like no matter how many times you read that sentence, it's going to be impossible to understand. I mean, all of these things are written onto the cards in the game. Yeah. But every card in that game is a wall of text. Yeah, it's, it is. Uh, it's rough. It's and it's all very small font too. So you're trying. I mean, to fit, it has to fit in the cards. Yeah. The whole rule book. Everything is like that. Everything in the game is like this. Yeah. I mean, it, this is an especially funny passage just because it uses Grand Scepter and Oathkeeper, which both sound like, I don't know, they both sound like cool, but also like very goofy from the outside. <laughs> so it just adds to this whole like Cones of I love, I feeling. love the, the pronouns it's using. Yeah. It just has no relevance to the actual structure of the game. Like the pronouns are great for a story that doesn't exist in a game that is not story-based or even like have a real map yeah it's entirely abstract yeah so and it, it's even more confusing because of that yeah so so there there are certain things that you really need to do like writing rules is really hard right like you know immediately if you're trying to teach people a new game and you're not relying on the rule book you're just talking to them anybody who's done that knows how hard it is to write rules because you're trying to explain rules to people and you don't even know where to start and it's hard to do things in the correct order and it's hard to remember the exact words for things. So like 
there's some things that all rule books are supposed to do. So some of the things are keeping consistent terminology, right, and choosing the right terminology. So the Grand Scepter and Favor, Oath Keeper, these are all like terms that the game has used to get you into the world of the game, um, but also they could be a little bit of a mouthful. Um, one of the games that we played relatively recently that I thought also just made the worst possible choice in terminology is Cuba. So Cuba uses all of these different, I can't even say resources and you'll see why, but they, they use all these different items during the game. And this is a little section of the rule book. It says, note, during the game, it is important to differentiate between resources, products, and goods. There are three kinds of resources, three sorts of products, and two kinds of goods. The trading ships transport products as well as goods. Both of these together are called merchandise. Resources are not shipped. Um, so this, this caused so many problems. I hate this. Like the game is bad. The game four, is fine too. The game is good. I'm not saying any of these games are necessarily bad, but the, these four terms: resources, products, goods, and merchandise all mean different things, but like, I feel like in English, they're all basically the same thing. So it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> this is an example of like, they did keep consistent terminology, but I just felt like the, the choices of word were just the worst. I feel like a lot of these situations are problems in that like board game developers and video game developers have sort of split into two completely different factions. And so they don't tend to learn from each other. Like in video games, this was solved quite a t long time ago. Um, and they started calling things input goods, output goods, mm. things like that. Like they sound bland, but they're really easy to understand and they don't overlap with other colloquial English terms. Right. So as a result, once you learn them, you're done learning and you don't have to keep referring to the rule book over and over and over again to translate everything you're doing. Right. Um, and a lot of things are like this, like lots of strategy games that have been solved in video game form, like don't translate over to board games. And there are some things in board games that work the other direction, but like tutorial systems have to be good in video games or they simply don't sell. Yeah. Whereas with board games, a lot of times those tutorial systems just, just don't happen in the rules. My biggest problem with some of these rule books is that they don't tell you what the win conditions are until like the end of the rule book. <laughs> Yeah, that's They don't tell common. you like what you're even, they tell you the actions you can take, but not what you're supposed to be doing. So some of these, these things, especially this Cuba thing, like in out of context sounds nightmarish. The game is not that difficult and each of these no. systems is not that hard, but it was really hard to describe them. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to mention a game that I hate for this reason. <laughs> yeah. The game, it was actually featured at Gen Con and I was like, why are people buying this game? But it was, it's Holy Festival of Colors. I sold this, I played it once and I sold it like immediately after I got it because it was horrible. <laughs> but the rule book says, players take turns performing actions including throwing color, move, and climb up. And then it says, throw your colored powder, water balloons, and buckets of color water in the air, gaining joy for getting color in the crowd. You're not actually throwing anything. The term throw just means place. They should have just said place the color on the board. It, it makes it seem like the entire time you're reading it, it's a dexterity game and it doesn't make any sense. You're like, how am I throwing this onto the board when you're not throwing anything? And on top of that, there were just so many grammatical mistakes. Like there was extra words where there shouldn't be. And so like the, se the sentences were nonsensical. No one read through that rule book. No one. I'm convinced. Like there were so many grammatical errors that I found just by myself that I'm, I'm convinced no one read it or proofread it. So I looked through the rule book when I played two weeks ago and 
because I wanted to see what you were saying. I didn't see a lot of the problems, although I, did, I didn't read, read like super detailed. I didn't see a lot of those problems, but the game was described to us ahead of time by a moderator, and um, there were definitely a lot of, there was a lot of confusion in that like throwing problem um, between what, what it means to throw a color because yeah. what it means is place a tile. Right. I um, had the same problem when we were playing that uh, disc game recently. The bag building game that you love that uses the word crash. I don't remember what the name of it is. What is it called? Sorry. We played a game recently that I also thought was a dexterity game because it kept saying crash your discs. Crash your discs. And no, it's not a dexterity game. That is such poor wording. Just put it's like they want it to be exciting. Like they want it to be exciting or something, so they use crash means give your disc to somebody else. Like I did not understand. Um what it was talking about. I definitely thought it was a dexterity game. I definitely think that Holy Festival of Colors would have been better if you threw the colors. But that's not what happens. <laughs> it's just a lame game that no one should buy ever. Uh, we did play it at Gen Con, and we didn't think it was as, as bad as, as you were saying fine. it was. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fine a game. game. But I, I can understand why you would be disappointed that it was not a dexterity game. Yeah. If you go in thinking it's a dexterity game, you're going to have some problems. Yeah. It's the opposite. Yeah. Um, then there's, so there's a great Reddit thread that, that basically is exactly about this, the most cones of Dunshire rules that you have read. And, uh, one of them is from Lovelace and Babbage, which we have not played, but it, um, this is another example of like just poor choice of terminology. And this is just because like, so the word is subroutine, which isn't a terrible word, but in the rules, they're trying to be very specific and consistent with the terminology, and the result is just this horrible passage. Target a subroutine. At the start of round one to four, each character chooses one of their character's subroutine cards to target and possibly complete the round. A targeted subroutine is completed if one of the other operation results from their program and round equals the number shown on their targeted subroutine card. Targeted subroutines complete, it, completed in this manner may be activated in later rounds. Any subroutine completed in round four may not be activated, but can still earn points during the resolution phase. Only one subroutine may be targeted and completed per round. It's just like so many... Oh my gosh, The word subroutine is said so many times. It's already complicated, but also just like subroutine is such a mouthful. So oh my gosh, just you're reading that passage and I'm like, no thanks, I'm... Hope yeah, pass on this it, one. Ma- it makes you want to <laughs> cry a little bit. <laughs> oh gosh! The um, one of the other things that usually is pretty gets you pretty tripped up is when there are nonsensical or unintuitive mechanics. Um, so even like even if it actually isn't a very complicated mechanic, if it's not intuitive, it becomes a lot more complicated and difficult to understand when it's being read to you. So um, there are two great, great examples that I saw in um, that Reddit thread that I was just referring to. One is for food chain magnet. And the this is a little passage from the rule book. It says, houses without a garden will never desire sushi. Sushi cannot be used as a substitute for coffee. And it's just like, I understand all the words, but like. I don't weird ass stuff going it's on there. It's very silly. <laughs> um, and another one that people said over and over and over again in this Reddit thread was feudum. Uh, what the heck? I would never play this game, but uh, this is also like so unintuitive. 
So it says, shuffle all 17 king seals, red side up, and draw four to place on the scrolls in the nobles' guild as shown. Draw four more and flip to reveal rosary beads and put them in the monk guild on the rosary. Draw one more and flip to reveal a rosary bead and place it atop a chicken in the farmer guild. Randomly draw 10 goods from the haversack and put them in the barn in the farmer guild. Um, a lot of people thought that the tutorial video for Feudum was some kind of satire. Uh, people couldn't believe that it was actually like a real game. Why do you put a rosary bead on top of a chicken? What is happening there? <laughs> we did try and watch the tutorial for Feudum. Um, we watched about five minutes and they were still in setup and all of it sounded like what I just read and it was so so horrible i don't know how people get through those games honestly it's like if i can't even get through the first page of the rule book i'm not gonna be getting through the whole game yeah um there's some really good ones in card games um the interesting thing about card games is that they have rules but then each individual card is also kind of its own miniature rule book right because they each have this very specific thing that it does um i found this horrible horrible card in magic the gathering called Dead Ringer. It says, destroy two target non-black creatures unless either one is a color the other isn't. What? And um, nobody un- nobody could decipher this one. No one. <laughs> and it it's not complicated. It just means, so it means destroy two target non-black creatures. So the, ca- the creatures can't be black, but also they must be the exact same color. So <laughs> wait, that's what I was trying to that's say. all it means. So it means that you can't destroy two black creatures, but you could destroy two blue creatures as long as they're only blue. But if they're mixed color creatures, like if they're blue and white, and one of them is blue and white, and one of them is blue, you can't destroy those two. They have to both be the exact same color. Ugh. And like maybe this is like yes, there's got to be a better way to say it. <laughs> exactly, got to be like a better way to say it. this has brevity going for it. It's like short and concise, but nobody knew what it meant. <laughs> I don't think it is short or concise. I think it's confusing and convoluted. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody agreed with you. Nobody understood this card. Um, Mark Rosewater wrote a blog post about it. He's like, "This is a terrible card. We really messed up here." Um, <laughs> I know. He agrees. Yeah, I know, Damon. You talk an awful lot about the Star Wars CCG and how horrible a lot of it is, how horrible the rules were. Well, the rules didn't start bad. I mean, the initial rulebook for the game was a scant few pages long, so it fit inside a deck box. Um, it like fit in your hand, and it was like a dozen pages. It was complex but interesting and relatively easy to understand once you laid out the cards. Mm. Um, but by 1998, the rulebook had ballooned to 142 pages. <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, here's a sample. Movement, landing and taking off. This is a subsection of movement. Okay. Just the landing and taking off part. Okay. A piloted starfighter at a site may take off to a related system. Similarly, a piloted starfighter at a system location may land at any related exterior site, but ties may only land at docking bays. Landing or taking off requires one force, but is free to and from a docking bay. A landed starfighter has no land speed, power, or maneuver and may not utilize game text except game text relating to occupant capacity or permanent pilots, normal starship weapons, or any cards which would logically require the starfighter to be moving and not be used. Oh, no. Okay, that's... That has so many problems going. That's one of the simpler systems in the game. Everything was like this um, by the time this rolled around, this glossary rulebook system. 
um, was also full of errata, fixing cards that were covered in text that needed changes to match newer cards. It was a disaster. Um, the rulebook included rules for Sabak, a separate game that you play on the side of the first game. So there's a rulebook for the game. That is actually in the Cones of Dunshire explanation. Right, and then there's a second <laughs> game inside the game. Each player draws the top two cards from their reserve deck. Players may then choose to draw additional cards. Beginning with your opponent, each player may in turn draw a card or pass. They must pass if they have no cards remaining in the reserve deck. If they already have six cards, after a pay passes, the player may not draw any more Sabak cards. Each card's value is equal to... It keeps going on like this. This is a separate game you play in response to a card in the game. Yeah. It is... It just go, it keeps going. It's it's bizarre. Um, I actually really liked these rules when I read them because I was really interested in what they'd be capable of representing. You could do almost any scene from Star Wars verbatim with these rule systems. Yeah. Unfortunately, no one wanted to <laughs> because yeah. they were so cumbersome and difficult. Um, and uh, we actually own Vampire the Eternal Struggle still, and that mm. game has very similar like it's got huge terminology hyper, It's issues. got terminology problems, but hyper-specific rules as well. So page 34, leaving torpor. Who can leave torpor? A vampire in torpor. Mm. Cost, two blood. Target, none. Undirected action, stealth, plus one. Effect, if the action is successful, the acting vampire moves from the torpor region to the ready region. If the action is blocked, there is no combat. Instead, if the blocker is a vampire, they get the opportunity to diablerize the acting vampire. See Diablery on page 34. If they choose not to, if they are an ally, then the action simply fails and the acting vampire remains in torpor and no cost is paid. A vampire leaving torpor is no longer wounded. Yeah, that's okay, horrible. This is, it just seems like they just made something so nonsensical up and just, let's just put this in the rulebook like this because it's going to confuse every single person who reads it. So it's supposed to match this system that was designed long ago about Vampire the Masquerade, which is that vampires are immortal creatures, right? And so you can't kill, kill them. them right? You can torpor them. You put them to sleep. And then when asleep, another vampire can drink their blood to murder them. So that's the system that it's trying to describe. But that's so unintuitive to the human brain that trying to explain it in a game, even in the simplest sense, and this is not actually nearly as complicated as it tries to describe it, uh, is extraordinarily difficult. It took us over a year to figure out how to do this. And it's, it's just a, like a simple three-step process. It's not actually that difficult. It's just that there is no natural analog for this problem. Yeah. They just use so many words that are not in the English, right? Torpor is actually the Gosh. only word to describe this, but it means functionally hibernation. Diablery? It just keeps going on about diablery. Who can diablerize? Any vampire. <laughs> Default target, the vampire in torpor. It explains, like, it try, it's trying to explain this in, like, a fixed set of this, then that, then that, then that. Yeah. Which would be easy if the words were some kind of word that you understand. Um, and and I think there's a right way to do this kind of like flavor terminology. I don't, I don't, I'm not against all flavor terminology. I don't even think torpor is necessarily a problem. It's just when you have so many of these words that no one has ever heard or they're not familiar with, they don't know what they mean. Um, and they're just piled on top of difficult rules. I don't know. It just, it gets horrible. Yeah, it's not natural language. Yeah. And that's definitely, definitely an issue. Dwellings of Eldervale has this problem. We talked mm, about that a yeah. couple times ago. We finally, we've sold the game. We, we, I don't think I could explain it to somebody else. 
I don't think I'm capable of explaining Another one that was so unintuitive. Not a, not a single thing was intuitive. The top review I saw was said, it's all about the dwellings. Which, <laughs> it's the most which cones of Dunshire possible. <laughs> dw- dwellings of Eldervale. Cones of Dunshire. These are the same <laughs> game. Here's the beginning of Dwellings of Eldervale. Roll dice to determine the starting player. The player who rolled the highest die wins. If it is a tie, look to the next highest die, and so on. Per Eldervale Battle Rules, page 14. Just for the start of the game. That's yeah. Just for starting. Just, just for, for the, the start. who is the start player yeah. part of the game. It's the most Cones of Dunshire game I think I've ever played. <laughs> I definitely think it's more than Oath. Trying to explain it, because it's not actually that difficult, but trying to explain it was so so difficult. Yeah. Um, nothing in it is intuitive. Everything is about dwellings. There are monsters, but they're just there to support the dwellings of Eldervale. It is something else. Um, so I, we couldn't we couldn't explain it to anybody else. There was just no way. Yeah. Uh, another one that I wanted to mention that was in the Reddit thread, and it's just so funny, is um, this game I've never heard of called Africa Corpse. And the passage is a hexagonal grid has been printed on the board to determine movement hereafter these hexagons will be called squares <laughs> for some reason they just didn't want to say the word hexagon in the rules um i thought that was hilarious um but this uh, like ultimately i think one night ultimate alien and its win conditions are i think my candidate for the most Cones of Dunshire rules. So One Night Ultimate Werewolf is a, is a great game. I, I enjoy it. Sarah hates it. Um, but One Night Ultimate Alien is utterly horrifying. And um, so the wind conditions. This is like supposedly a simple social deception deduction game. And um, so it works in the same way. So there are the good guy team, and then there's the bad guy team. The good guys are trying to kill the bad guys. The bad guys are just kind of trying to survive. So you have the village team, and then you have the alien team. Um, and so some of the characters are just normal characters, and they are on one, one team or the other. Um, and then there are special characters. So there are two alien characters called Groob and Zurb, and this is their win condition. If both Groob and Zurb are in the game, Groob only wins if Zurb dies and Groob stays alive, and Zurb only wins if Groob dies and Zurb stays alive. In both cases, the village team wins as well, since at least one alien was killed. Any other aliens in the game lose if either Zurb or Groob dies. If only one of the two is in the game, she is on the alien team as normal. If both Zurb and Groob are in the game and saw each other when they woke up, they pointed at each other with their eyes closed instead of putting up their thumbs. And then there's also a leader, and if Zurb and Groob are not both in the game, the leader wins with the village team. If both of them are in the game, the only way the leader wins is if both Zurb and Groob are alive at the end of the game. There's also a character called the Blob. Uh, The Blob doesn't wake up, but is told which and how many players adjacent to it are now part of the Blob. The Blob wins as long (laughs) as none of the players who are part of the Blob, including the Blob player, are killed. The Blob wins in addition to any other team that might win. The players the Blob must keep alive are always relative to the location of the Blob card at the end of the game. And it it just keeps going like this. There's a character called the Doppelganger, and the Doppelganger can doppelgang any other character in the game. And depending on which character they doppelgang, they have different rules 
like for their wind conditions and stuff. Um, so if they are a Groob or Zerb doppelganger, doppelganger, they wake up with the aliens um, and also with Groob and Zerb. Well, she must kill her frenemy, Groob, if she is Zerb, and Zerb, if she is Groob, to win. The real Groob and Zerb may win by killing her if she is the doppelganger of their target. The leader only wins if Zerb, Groob, and the doppelganger of either are alive at the end of the game. Um, this game was the worst. I hated this game. And most of the reason was because you had no idea what your win condition was. Like, even if you're told, you don't know what you're trying to do. Ever. And since every single person has their own win condition, and it's so easy to just stumble into the win condition accidentally, it never really feels like you worked for it. Um, it's horrible. <laughs> The, the final one is also a game we haven't played, but it's just so great. Um, it's called Here I Stand. And the passage is, If the Henry's marital status marker is on the ask for divorce space, the papacy may agree to grant the divorce to the English power. If such an agreement occurs, the English player moves the marker to Anne Boleyn and rolls immediately on the pregnancy chart as described in 21.3. The English players may roll again during the action phase of this turn if they want to play the six wives of Henry VIII. Pregnancy chart. Never heard of a pregnancy chart in a game? War of the Rings sounds a lot like this. <laughs> oh, that was so bad. You're right. I wish I had pulled a passage from that game. That was horrible. Yeah, War of the Ring definitely feels like that. Every line is like that. Yeah. For many, many, many pages. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad one. All right, well, uh, if you have read a rule book that just utterly delighted or horrified you by its cones of dunshireness, let us know. You can email us at playdnapodcast.com, and there you can also find our other episodes. As always, play safe, play often, and we will see you next episode.